All right. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Learning Tech Talks, where we're exploring the landscape of learning technology and cutting through the fluff to answer the questions you need answered to make the right decisions when building your digital learning ecosystem. Today, I'm joined by Toby Harris and Rob McAllister from Filtered, and we're talking about making learning relevant with their Magpie AI product. Uh, and so for those of you joining us live, be sure to give us a thumbs up and tag in somebody who would benefit from the conversation. But before we get started talking about all the fun learning tech stuff, uh, the, the question of the week is, what is a TV series that you are embarrassed to admit you've binge watched? So uh, for those of you watching, you know, it's time for you to, to share as well. We want to see that in the comments. But Rob and Toby, what is a series you're embarrassed to have binge watched? And Toby, you didn't tell me, but I know you said there's more than one. So you, you're welcome <laughs> to share more than one. Yeah, it's it's, 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 hard, it's hard to choose, um, really, Chris. I, I don't know whether I should go for the kind of ultra violence or just for complete trash. Um, you know, I, either one seems a little bit disreputable. Um, but so, so yeah, obviously, like everyone, I, I binge watch a huge amount of TV. Um, but uh, the one I'm going to pick, I think, is um, going to be The Punisher. Um, that's a, a recent uh, yeah, Marvel series on, an, on, a, on Netflix. I think for some people, it falls into the territory of like being non-trashy non TV. But it's, it's so excessively violent. No, I would I would put it in that category. I, yeah, I like you know what I we've we've watched the Punisher. I don't know that that's that embarrassing, right? So I, you can do you may think about that one. Maybe you can do better than that. How about you, Rob? Um, I was thinking. I think the one that really hits home for me was um, Spartacus: Blood on the Sand, okay. which um, <laughs> similar to the Punisher, um, it is kind of highly violent, uh, quite graphic it's like you know frank miller from sin city if you haven't seen it it was on uh, i think fx in the us it was on bravo okay. in the uk okay and um i think what makes it even more embarrassing is in all our onboarding webinars when we kind of demo our product to some clients i have a picture of my netflix history and it says because you've watched this <laughs> and it always pops up and i just think oh god this is really embarrassing okay so it follows you wherever you go yeah. Okay. Well, so you both you both went for the violent kind of over gore route. You know, I I would say mine's probably a little bit more embarrassing, not on the violent side. So mine is Real Housewives of Orange County, right? That's it's just one of those. I now to be fair, to be fair, I did watch it with my wife. So this was not like a you know when I just did it by myself, but. I will say that we got into that and we binge watched, we binge watched the heck out of the real housewives of orange County. So, uh, yeah, I love to love to hear from those of you who are tuning in <laughs> what your binge watching was. So we, we, we went ultra violent and ultra right. Trashy, I guess maybe, I, I don't know how you would do what category you would put real housewives in, but I don't know that it's still in our watch history. <laughs> All right, so let's let's get into the the other side of things, which is which is Magpie and and artificial intelligence as it relates to learning and development. But before we do that, I'd love to just dig a little bit, very briefly, into your background. So, Toby, let's start with you. Where where did you come from, and how did you end up landing at Filtered? Yeah, and um, so um, I've been with Filtered now for nearly four years. So I joined in twenty sixteen. Uh, prior to that, um, I worked for a company called Saffron Interactive. That's a London-based company that um, produced bespoke e-learning courses and kind of bespoke LMS platforms. Okay. 
I joined Filtered uh, simply because of because of the AI stuff, really. Well, not just because of that. Um, I joined because I really like the, the co-founders and the people involved in the business and the culture they created. But also, um, it was at that time in 2016, they were some of one of the only vendors in London that I could see that had something interesting to offer. Um, so, so, yeah, um, my background at Saffron was um, the whole gamut, really, from instructional design project management to a lot of commercial kind of account management stuff as well okay so. all right how about you rob where'd you where'd you come from uh, where did i come i've been i worked in the music industry for about eight years um and funnily enough my first job i always considered it a consultancy role but as i kind of worked at filtered i i was um aware that it was practically an lnd role um, without knowing this so my first role, I worked for a company called Music Ally, and we would go into the big uh, record labels and effectively show them how to do digital transformation. So this was in 2012, 2011. Facebook kind of was petrifying everybody. Amazon, Spotify were the big, big things. And um, I actually had to write a 15-module course, um, you know, as one of my first jobs to kind of teach people these digital marketing concepts, uh, not even considering that this was uh, a leadership and development kind of uh, training career that I may have. Um, but we were effectively, because it was marketing, I then moved into a couple of marketing roles with labels and working with kind of artists before um, moving to Filtered, kind of moving the, the rock and roll um, to the kind of exciting world of like data and then, um, you know, <laughs> Uh, from the exciting world of music, and then I came to L and D. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, and we talked a little bit about this before before you came on, but just for everyone's benefit, you know, what were some of the biggest differences you saw coming from the music industry and then coming over into L and D? Um, I think a lot of it is is data awareness and data understanding. Um, you know, I've talked about one or two of the kind of platforms that people were looking at. So Facebook and uh, Twitter. And I, I remember I worked with artists where we would route a tour around North America based on where their fans were. So, you know, you're having a data back decision to say, you know, Gavin DeGraw is more like has more fans in North Carolina than South Carolina. So we're going to play a show in North Carolina rather than South Carolina. So you're using all of this data to kind of make your decisions and um, make sure you sell out more. You know, the impact of that data decision making is really powerful. Uh, and that was in, you know, 2012, 2011. Um, so really having this data to kind of route where people are going. Similarly with Spotify, looking at Spotify data streams to be able to say, okay, well, let's shorten our songs or let's make them longer. Let's pitch them to this playlist. Um, technology has been such a massive enabler in the music industry. Uh, similar as it is kind of very much in the L&D industry. Um, but because I guess the music industry has been on this journey since 2003, 2002, when Napster just threw a hand grenade on everything, um, <laughs> they've had to accelerate a lot quicker to kind yeah. of accommodate for this kind of uh, digital landscape. So that's, I think, the biggest thing is the data awareness, using data where I feel like we are, we're getting there um, as an L&D kind of industry. And I think the it's great that the more and more clients we speak to are coming in with a kind of data awareness of using tools like Tableau, Power BI, Nime, Watershed. Um, but really then understanding what to do next with the data is kind of the big issue, I think, is how do you use it? There's so much data out there. It's filtering out. It's a big difference, I think. 
You you kind of went domo arigato at the very end there, but yeah, I, I got the gist of what you were talking about. Which, and are you are you trying to imply that L and D isn't all the way there yet from a data standpoint? Because I am sorely offended, Rob, that you would even <laughs> suggest that. <laughs> oh, well, I, I won't answer that. I'll, I'll stay neutral. <laughs> no, but it's 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 a it's a fair point. It is, and I think we are. We're making progress, and I think sometimes we're we're pretty hard on ourselves. I think there's no shortage of, you know, people beating up L and D from from all sides, and I think that's to some degree some of the reasons we're we're a little bit slow to the game because we're we're a little nervous, we're scared, we're we're worried about it. It's territory we haven't moved into, and I think admitting that is one of the good first steps to say, hey, we don't know necessarily how to do this perfectly, so let's learn from plenty of other people who have already done it you know we've we've heard the statements learn from marketing i think your your analogy with music industry is a great way to just very much lay out this is the kind of things that this data can do to help us be more effective it's not it's it's not something we should be scared of um so so let's i'm i'm curious to shift over to filtered a little bit because you know ai gets thrown around a lot um and i'm and i'm confident that filtered didn't set out to say Hey, I know. Let's just make something with AI so that we can say AI. So, what has that journey been like? It filtered, and what did you set out to solve when when you started that? I'll have a go at taking that one, but I'm sure Rob will add a bit of uh, clarity to my thoughts on it. So, when filtered set out nearly ten years ago, um, we knew that we wanted to use advanced technology to use machine learning to accomplish um, our goals. And um, we had the benefit of a co-founder, Chris Littlewood, who was at that time a kind of strategic uh, consultant, but had a background as a nuclear physicist at CERN. So we really knew where this technology had been developed. Um, the problem that we picked was one that we felt was very real, which was Excel and Excel skills. Um, we saw it was a big topic. Um, Everyone could get something a bit different out of Excel, depending on their role, their level of seniority and what they needed to do with it. And yet all of the trainings out there were either beginner Excel, intermediate Excel or advanced Excel. Yep. So we looked at a problem. Um, we broke it down. So we broke Excel down into 160 different functions. And that was a short list. You know, that's like taking a small slice. And then we mapped those through to different roles and to a pre-assessment questions and that enabled us to create a filter for the course now um machine learning followed naturally from this because yeah. we started gathering feedback from users as um you know every module would have a little question at the end um did you find this content useful did you know it already or was it not relevant to you um and the data set you generate starts to allow you to make inferences on top of your initial mapping um, so to correct your assumptions, to improve them and to build a course which actually adapts to its own users. Um, but it was a pretty uh, modest and, and straightforward use of AI and it, it was kind of doing a job. Um, and everything we've done has, has followed that path. And a bit like with the Excel piece, um, was the machine learning significant? Sure. You know, did it, did it get people to notice us? Yes, it did. And that, that's good. It wasn't the most important phase in solving the problem. Okay. The most important phase in solving the problem was rethinking it conceptually. Conceptually understanding that Excel could be filtered into lots of different discrete units and we could have a system to determine which was more important. 
And um, that really applies to, to Magpie and the kind of artificial intelligence we're using now. Um, the cornerstone of these efforts is actually rethinking the problem, understanding it very differently. Okay. Um, and in the case of Magpie, it was understanding that there might be a better way to recommend someone some content than just giving them a search bar and asking, what do you want to learn about today? Okay. Um, and putting it onto the individual. Um, so the AI inside our products um, follows pretty naturally from the approach we've taken. But it's a really important thing, I think, to, to bear in mind that all AI starts with rethinking how to perform a task in a way that is readable by computers and is kind of, you know, you can capture data on it, you can tag that data well. And the rethinking is way more important than the actual machine learning algorithms that you lay on on top. That's a, I mean, that's a critical statement there that I think is important for people in learning and development to think about is that it's not, and we've seen, we've seen trends over the years where we've made this mistake where we've simply jumped from, okay, we're just going to take the stuff we have and we're just going to put it in a different format or a different medium, or, or we're going to dump it in and hope AI can fix it. And it's, it's far more than just doing something like that. And I, I think your Excel example is a great one, even just highlighting the fact that Excel isn't just beginner intermediate and advanced. And I've seen plenty of content out there where that's all the categories there are. And to me, that's where micro learning, and I hate that term, but right, that was kind of the genesis of what we were trying to get at is how do we break things into smaller chunks so that we can build towards a more personalized experience. At least that was kind of the journey that I was hoping it would go on. And then it, it kind of took some different directions along the way. But Rob, anything you'd add mm -hmm. to that? No, I think Toby summarized it very well. And I think what's very clear from that is that the, the kind of concept of personalization and curation is at the DNA of filtered. And the, the three founders have kind of been aware of this problem of too much content. There's too much for people to learn for the past 11, 12 years. Um, and being able to take that knowledge and that experience and extrapolate it to a wider skills um, framework rather than just Excel has been kind of really, really powerful. And it's meant that I think the understanding of curation and personalization is in the DNA of the company um, because it's what the effectively what the business was built on, cutting out the stuff that you didn't need to know from an Excel course. Okay. Well, what's, what I think is interesting about that, and I've seen this over the years, and I, 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 I personally, I went through this on my own earlier in my career was, one of the things that in L&D we, we have to be comfortable getting over with is this idea that what we created is so important that everybody needs to know all of it, right? And that's that's a little bit of an identity crisis where it's like, well, I made this stuff. Everybody has to see all of it because I put all this work into this and, and everyone needs to see it. And it's like, well, but maybe they don't. Maybe they only need to see 1% of what you created. And that doesn't mean that what you created is bad. It just means that for each person, they're at an individual level and you can't do that. But if you don't, if you don't make that break, you'll continue to try and figure out, well, how can we use personalization to cram everything down everyone's throat and just show them how important it is? Yeah. And there's, and there's two sides, there's two sides to that as well, Chris, because, um, and I get what you're saying about the micro learning problem. So if you're going to create an effective personalized experience, there needs to be a, a good amount of content in the first place. Like right. you, like with Excel, I mean, the, the overall course is huge. It would take you hours and hours and hours to complete it. 
but that was necessary so we could get to the half an hour the 10 minutes that would actually make the difference okay and so people get micro learning wrong is when they think oh this is all about condensing what i need to say yeah. into like a 30 second soundbite that's, that's not quite right you've got to think about the journey that someone needs to go on and cut that down and just to reiterate that point mate rob made about curation we definitely are a, a curation business and um, we absolutely believe that less is more. You know, it's, it, it is about getting to less for you as, a, as, a, as an organization and, and for the individual. And that is a very complex, difficult journey. As you say, it's much easier to add more. Yeah. It's much easier to build more. It's much harder to say, I want to end up with a lot less than I've got now. <laughs> right. So, so one question that, that Toby Newman asked, and I, I think it's an important one, is so you look at the Excel example, and I don't want to say that's easy because we talked about the complexity of it, right? We, you you got to break it into all these pieces, and then you got to figure out how to make it relevant and filter all that down. But you're basing it off of something that exists, right? We knew that Excel was a thing. We knew all this content existed. As you look at, I think, the challenge we're faced in, in HR and in learning and development is how do we get ahead of that curve? So instead of being reactionary and saying, okay, well, three years later, we know everybody needs Excel. And now people aren't even using Excel because they're using Smartsheet, right? And now all of a sudden we're behind the curve. How do you how do you leverage this to help us move faster to get ahead of this and identify some of these future skills so that we can do that and personalize that instead of always being reactionary? I'm curious, you know, if you if you've had to tackle that. Do you want to tell that, Toby, or shall I? Um I'll have a go. You can, you can <laughs> um, so, yes, doing this for future skills is harder um, than doing it for skills that we um, we already know very well. But those are also two things you can factor into an analysis. So the analysis that we do at the start of any of our projects is all about coming up with a list of between 20 and 50 highly prioritized skills for that organization. Not 400, not 1,500, not 15,000. Yeah, there probably are that many, but the point is you do need to prioritize if you want to change something. Um, and it's it's really, if you can imagine um, a graph and on, on the y-axis, you've got capabilities that are important now. And on the other axis, you've got the stuff that's happening in the future. Um, and we can we can look at both of those factors for a given industry, for a given company. So we can look at existing economic data sets that say what are the skills important to these particular people in their roles now and we can look at you know good predictions about what's going to happen to this industry what are the mega trends what are the strategic reports and then we come up with a blend of the two because if you're in too future focused you're kind of off in fairyland and no one's going to really buy in that you're going to have no traction whereas as you say if you're just focusing on existing skills then you're um, you're in danger of not producing something which is tapping into the change the organisation needs to make. Uh, Rob obviously has to do this on the ground a lot, and he's had to implement completely future-facing skill frameworks uh, and sell them in. So, what's your take on this question of now versus the future, Rob? I think the um, everything that you've said, I would agree with Toby. You know, desk research is key, trend spotting is key, but also the thing to maybe say about um, our platform, Magpie, is that every individual instance for a client is different it's unique it's bespoke to their own skills framework so if we're working in one organization we're not going to start from scratch and kind of implement something that they don't already agree with so it might be that a client has already done some desk research and has the kind of skeleton of a framework around future skills and we take that um 
initiative and that understanding, as Toby has said, we map that with what our own kind of understanding is. And the beauty is, is that because we use artificial intelligence and machine learning, the content will iterate and expand based on the usage. So it's not that, you know, when we launch a platform with a user or with an instance, we're continuously, for our sins, updating it. You know, it's this living thing. Yeah. Every week, every month, there is the potential to add more content to it, to identify new skills. Uh, and, you know, going back to the data point, we look at our data for usage very heavily. It might be that something um, that is being really highly accessed, such as, say, for example, communication for a digital transformation project. Yep. Yep. Communication is still super important. Um, but it might be that the business thinks that blockchain is the thing that everyone needs to focus on. Um, having that communication kind of understanding um, and making sure that people understand that communication is still key is still really important. It might not be the future skill that we're going for, but if you look at kind of what LinkedIn learnings kind of skill uh, reports are saying, you know, creativity is one of the number one skills that everybody should have. That's not a new skill. No, no. But the way that it's being used is very different in terms of what creativity could have meant 20 years ago to now. Yeah. So it's not just about finding those future possible skills. It's about kind of raising the relevance of skills that you may not assign to a certain task or objective um, as well. Well, and two things that you brought up that I think are, are critical in this is this to me, getting ahead of the skill, the skill gap, it's a shared partnership. And I think sometimes, you know, we in L&D look to vendors to say, so what is it? And it's like, what? Well, Hey, what what is it to you? We can help you understand some of the trends that are happening. We can help you understand what's going on in the market because we're talking to a lot of people. But you know your business. You know, you need to help us understand what are your core priorities. What are the things? And I and that's where I think the strategic partnership between our internal as practitioners and you as external providers it's key. We can't we can't just delegate that responsibility of knowing. You know, hey, you just give us our top five list of things that, that that doesn't exist. I think the other thing that you brought up, which is something that I've been wildly focused on for a while, is being able to identify those timeless skills that, if anything, technology is bubbling to the surface in priority. However, like you said, it's a different application of it. Yeah. Communication is not going away anytime soon. If anything, technology is skyrocketing it to the top because more than ever, people have to be better communicators as technology is taking away some of these trivial tasks. We're being asked to do more human activities. And I think the part that's unique about it, though, that we're seeing, even with what's going on with the coronavirus, is the application of communication is different now. It's not just, do you know how to have a water cooler conversation? And can you stand in front of a room and present well? It's do you know how to navigate digital technology? Can you have a digital presence? Can you work with people, you know, globally in a different way? And I think that's something that, you know, it's that balance of what are the hard skills and what are the the human skills, if you will, and how do we prioritize them? Mm. Cool. Um, I think as well on future skills, just very quickly, um, you have to be able to speak to the the organization that you're working with to understand actually what are their future skills. It might be that we go into an organization and we perceive that blockchain is the skills of the future. And we go to an organization, everybody already knows blockchain. So it's not a future skill. It might be that we propose that, um, you know, something in Python, let's say, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm using very digital skills, but it's very tangible, whereas no one can use Excel. 
So a skill for the future could be having that capability, a threshold where everybody can do a pivot table and a VBA in Excel. That could be a skill for the future, you know, because they don't have that now. Right. And we know that's not going to go away. Okay. And I would add to that just to try and summarize as thoughts that for in most in most cases, um, the future skill is, is a skill that already exists somewhere. The concept of adjacency is more important than the concept of stuff in the future. It's about being able to map what's close to what you have now that you need to get to, what's what's achievable, what's less achievable. And, you know, it's interdisciplinarity. It's industries learning from other industries, just like we were talking about at the start. Um, I just wanted to grab onto one of the comments I, I saw coming through from um, Mark um, Ramos as well, because um, he's talking about using multiple data sources. So can we marry LinkedIn hiring of skills data to identify skill trends or trending and align it with uh, Magpie's AI? Um, so Magpie's AI boils down to um, a, a configuration. Uh, so um, basically a set of competencies, a set of weightings against user inputs um, that are then mapped through to um, content through tagging and curation um, against that skill framework. But the way we put that configuration together is as good as the amount of data sources we can put in. Yeah. So if we can just go from global economic data, sure, that's okay. And that's like your off-the-shelf kind of product. Yep. Um, but it's only going to be so effective. Um, I've learned, and I'm not a data scientist uh, by any stretch, but what I've learned about data science um, and this sort of stuff from working with Filtered is that um, accuracy and relevance and usefulness comes from combining multiple data sources. And this is where the partnership angle comes in that you, you, you mentioned, Chris. Magpie is okay on its own, um, but it's only really going to be super effective if the organization can say, okay, I trust you. Here is the data, like Marcus said, that I've got from uh, my LinkedIn hiring data. Here's my skill data. Um, if you're willing to give that to us, then we, we, can, we can blend it together for you and produce something that sits on top of, of all of it. And that's where the insight comes in. And in that sense, data science is, is no different to um, reading a lot and synthesizing those ideas and writing down a good blog post about something. It's really similar to that, you know, combining lots of data, figuring out how to map it all together. That's when the power really comes. Well, and the, it's it's a great question that Mark brought up because it is about bringing as much data to the table on things like that. But the other part of it that I think is a little bit of a shift for us as a function is we have to think about the broader talent continuum. We can't just be thinking about learning and development and how are people learning. We have to think about how are we bringing people into the organization? How are we identifying talent? How are we category? And we need to understand that stuff so we can say, okay, as we're looking at learning solutions or learning technologies, how are we marrying it with this other component of things? And that, again, it's not just a partnership with vendors. It's a partnership with other functions in the business mm -hmm. to know what are they doing? How are we operating? So it's it's a great question, Mark. The other one, though, that I'm going to that I'm gonna kind of bring up that I think continues to even be a challenge for me sometimes as I look at where we go from a learning and development standpoint is we're getting much, much, much better at delivering content, right? I think we're getting much smarter about yeah. what content do people need and how do we deliver it to them. At the same time, we can't overlook that consuming content isn't the only component of learning. If, if you can binge watch all the TED Talks you want, doesn't make you a great presenter. I can promise you that. So how do you work with organizations to set 
those expectations or help make sure that they're balancing the whole continuum because it's not that better delivering content is bad, but if that's where you stop, you're not going to see skills continue to develop. Yeah, yeah I think that I'll go first on this one, Toby. Um, is uh, I think there's two things that generally we try to do um, for anything, any project that we work on. And one is to have really clear success metrics. So it could be really simple. It could be engagement. But if we move to impact, we try and identify what those metrics are that are going to move the needle in the business. Okay. So one customers could be their customer satisfaction scores have decreased um, in the past two years, for example, you know, what are the skills that we're going to identify that are going to elevate those that are going to have an impact not only on the individual, but the business in general? You know, CSAT scores or customer satisfaction scores are relatively easy. They're a metric that are already tracked. Um, the other thing that we, you know, that we try and do with the majority of our clients is we, we are survey, we surveys. So, you know, if you completed something, a particular skill, and we do this with a lot of our pilots, we will ask people have you put anything into practice what you have learned on magpie um, for certain pilots you know we get as high as 80 percent on average we're kind of at 60 70 percent and that's exactly the point of i've watched a ted talk has that affected the way that you think because that can that can have a big impact even just yeah. thinking you know yep. synthesizing it as toby said um, and being able to say that this exposure to this piece of content has changed how I work. It's obviously so powerful. The impact is there. So we do, at the moment, it's a manual feedback loop. As Toby has alluded to, we ask, within the tool baked into it, we ask people relevancy, you know, was it useful, was it not? That's a really small amount of feedback. We then go a little bit deeper and ask them on an individual level via email, via a survey, um, have you put anything to practice? Yes, no. And like I say, generally, or the, the majority of people that we survey, um, are saying that they have put at least one or two things into practice that they've learned. And like I said, it doesn't have to be being able to kind of conquer the world in one thing. These small changes can have a huge difference in how you lead a team in terms of communication or how you, um, you know, efficientize your kind of work. So we're not necessarily going for these massive, massive wins. Um, and a lot of it is down to the client in terms of what data and success metrics they have. Yeah. Because we can come in and prove that impact in terms of asking you, Christopher, have you, Put something into practice yes or no but we also need to make sure that putting something into practice solves this bigger business aim yep. that we can tangibly say we've moved the needle as a lnd team internally but as a provider externally you know we and acknowledge that there's going to be multiple parts right retention right. in a business could be a wide variety of reasons why people are leaving their jobs so if we deliver a management course or a management solution and things go through the roof there's going to be other parts to play today it could be that the benefit system's changed it could be that there's a whole new set of personnel but it's having that awareness of kind of the other factors as well well and the thing that that brings up that really on the practitioner side is is the message to take home is that it's like th this is still it's not like this makes our role irrelevant even if machine learning and ai takes care of all this stuff we still have to play a role to say okay yes this content's getting better we know that components fixed. Yes, maybe we're capturing some measurements, but what are the other things that our employees need to be able to get better at it? Because it's not just content, it's it's all these other things. And how do we build a holistic mm. solution? So the other thing though, and I and I'd love to get your take on this is um, you know, we talked a lot about it's as good as the data comes, right? The data that comes to you is is as good as it's going to get. And and granted you have you have your own data that you can bring that can kind of bring you an off the shelf thing. How do you work? Because I can tell you, I don't think I've been in an organization where I've said our data is 
amazing. It's spotless. It's clean. I can count on it. Everything about it is great. I wouldn't change a thing. So we're, we're a lot of times dealing with, with bad data or incomplete data. How do you, how do you work with organizations on that? Because that is a risk, right? You it's yes, lots of data is good, but if it's bad data, then you might actually be kind of putting things in the wrong way. So how, how do you work with that? It's, it's unusual that you can um, that you have good data to accomplish the thing that you want sitting on the shelf. Yeah, um, that's that's very rare. If you if you had that, it's probably because you're you're trying to optimize something you're sort of already optimizing for. But often, if we're trying to, as in the examples we've talked about, we're trying to change behavior in a big way. We just don't have well structured data. So if we, for example, want um, managers to be uh, developing themselves more in their own time and sharing that with their team, and all we have is an LMS full of compliance data, uh, good luck. Like, it doesn't matter how, <laughs> how much you dig, right? You, you always, the data's going to tell you its use case. The data creates, its, you know, the system creates its own context. Um, so when we say that we're only as good as the data we have um, from our clients, um, it's important to note that we need something there so we can do something with it to create a way of generating better data. And the most tangible example of this is asking good questions. So it's a very, very simple feature of the product, um, and it's very, very important. You know, I mentioned at the start the, the real non-AI, non-machine learning innovation piece of Magpie was what if rather than a 20 minute survey to generate a recommendation, we only ask people three questions? Okay. What if we only give ourselves three questions to ask? A, how do we generate good recommendations from that and therefore the skill signature and the product? And B, um, what questions do we ask? <laughs> and we've been on a huge journey, but the most, the most amazing things I've seen happen with our product and client data is when we're able to take um, a huge mound of research and insight and user personas and people personas and turn that into three questions for A, generate a good recommendation for users and B, generate this really useful kind of tracking piece to understand when someone said X, did they do X or did they do Y? Were those assumptions right? And so what we're doing is basically tagging every activity after that with that initial question response. Okay. Um, and so it's a kind of two-way process, you know, yeah, you, you, you've got to, you need good structured data to accomplish a task like recommendations and you can generate that data, but you do need to start with the best you've got and um, okay. that'll give you a head start. Well, and one, two, two of the things, one's going to lead to my next question. And one of the points you brought up goes back to something you said earlier, which is this requires in many cases, a fundamental mindset shift for hmm. People in our people in our industry to say, hey, we don't need to ask twenty questions. Let's. What are the three that actually are going to make a difference? Versus getting caught up in, well, but we need to ask twenty because that's how how we've historically done it. And then the second way, the second question that this leads me to is: so with this, I'm curious on that because the Netflix of learning analogy is so burned out. It is just so burned out, and you know, I, I'm kind of tired of hearing it because the reality is you look at Netflix and even Spotify, right? Going back to the music industry, it's, it's trying to make preferences based on what you like, right? Your, your, your preference, not necessarily what you need. Nobody's, nobody's listening to their playlist and going, Oh wow, Spotify knew I needed that song so I could push out this next, you know, rap. But in learning and development, that's 
really where we want to go. We're not looking to go for edutainment. We're trying to go for mm -hmm. driving things yeah. forward. So how does Magpie help balance that? Because yes, there's something to say about, look, if you push people things they hate, it doesn't matter if it's what they need, you're not going to get anywhere. But at the same yeah. time, if all you're giving them is things they like, how, how do you strike that balance? I, I want to flip that question around and say yeah. say something, and then hand over to Rob to give some examples. <laughs> okay. No, um, no, no pressure. Okay. So the question, this question, the question's coming through is, well, you're just a you're just a content recommendation engine. You're getting content consumption data. Um, how do you actually impact performance? How do you change the way an organization works? And the obvious answer is that we don't do that on our own. Yeah. Um, and the the way that we do it is is much more negative than positive if that's a bit, if that's a good way to frame it in that actually there's a ton of stuff that is stopping you from helping your people improve their performance frankly they're stopping people from just doing their jobs and it's certainly stopping you from achieving the kind of behaviors you want to do how many companies do you know where if you sign up for a piece of mandatory or non-mandatory training it instantly becomes mandatory and you have to attend it. Otherwise, your department gets fined. I mean, that's that's pretty common. Um, how, how often is that investment of time and effort linked to performance? Not very much. But how much is it demanded and implemented? Oh, loads. Happens all the time. Mandatory soft skills training and unconscious bias or all sorts of things or sitting people down to do stuff. So the biggest power that we give our customers is actually often, as, as L&D teams or as change teams, is often the power to say no. The power to say, well, actually, look, I have some data and um, I can show you that this session isn't going to land. Um, the skills that you're teaching aren't things that are, um, but by looking together, we, we see as needs and they're not things that really um, users capitalize on and they don't apply them. So can you justify why we need to put people through this training? And that flips the conversation around yeah. and suddenly creates a different conversation where the business leader says, okay, fine, all right, fine. You know, I'm not going to, all right, I'm not going to make everyone do that classroom training, okay, because I don't have any data. This is what I want to do. <laughs> How can you help me do it? And then L&D has something different to say. And we become um, more of a strategic partner. And I, well, I want to jump on that, Rob. I'm going to throw it back over to you. But it's, it, that is such an important point and why data is so important to us in L&D. Because I can say even back before we had all the cool toys that, that are out there now, even some of that basic data of, well, people need this. We need to push this out. And before we didn't really have a leg to stand on to say, um, well, no, no, they don't. You know, or if we did, it was always met with, well, that's your opinion. We have ours. And I can tell you from some data initiatives I did a while back, it does arm you with the data you need to say, hey, listen, I know you think this is important. Guess what? Nobody's done any of that and nobody cares about any of that. And so what you're actually asking is to slow people's performance and put barriers in their way versus remove barriers and give them things that are relevant, which goes back to a question Toby asked earlier about, you know, well, how do you deal with organizational kind of pushing to say you have to do it? And this is actually a way to solve for that by saying we have data now to give, give a pushback versus our opinion. Go ahead though, Rob. No, I think the additional part from, from kind of seeing some of the comments come in is um, to, to kind of, how do you get people to, to learn what the organization wants them to learn? And this fear that um, within a recommendation engine, you can kind of send people on to kind of, uh, I was chatting to another client the other day and they have a content provider in the top course of their pilot was how to draw monsters. You know, this is a telecommunications organization. Um, 
So it provides a really good question. You know, how do you get people not just kind of Pandora's box, go and do all this stuff, learn at work that's not relevant? And that's why we use curation. And that's why the curation part of what we do, like I said, it's in our DNA is to at least find the things that are the most relevant. The organization approves, you know, most importantly. I think the thing that should be really clear is that we are a provider that has to work hand in hand with our client. Without the client and the client not wanting to play ball is, is, is kind of pointless. Um, but to be able to curate a library of content that people really care about. But then that comes to the next point, which is where my kind of marketing background comes in, is really selling the why. Why should people learn? And that's when, whenever we work with an organization, we have a big kickoff workshop and it's effectively us asking for two, three hours. It's like the Spanish Inquisition. We just ask questions, and questions, and questions. And it is understanding, you know, here, Rob. <laughs> you know, why, why should your learner use this rather than go and search Google? Because that's what we're competing against or go to YouTube. And in Google yeah. and YouTube, you can't control what people are looking at. And we're not trying to control. We're trying to guide. We're trying to guide people down the right path. Now, if they take that path, then fantastic. But it's it's kind of curating content, but that that why of you know, future skills is a really good example. You know, the average skill length at the moment, based on I think one of the latest reports, between two and a half and five years that you acquire. Yep. Yep. So it's being clear about why learning is becoming more and more important than ever within a corporate workspace. But there are you know distractions. So the average person looks at their phone 120 times a day. How are you supposed to do things? So it's it's been really clear of what the value proposition of that is which is why we've kind of aligned a lot of what we do to change programs. So not trying to solve all of the business's problems in one go, but to focus down one capability. So that could be line management, that could be digital capabilities, and being able to say, we are failing as a business because we are not able to be innovative and think digitally and use these profiles or where our consumers and our customers are. So we need to level up. It's a really powerful kind of selling point. The other yeah. side is there's a huge, you know, there's a huge knowledge gap from a management perspective, let's say. People are leaving the business, which creates these huge knowledge gaps, which are stopping us from comp competing with our competitors. So we're losing market share or we're spending loads of money trying to hire new people. It's having that kind of alignment to the business goals, the business needs to say to your learner, this is why you should care on a kind of micro level, but this is how it affects the business as well. Um, so I think that's kind of the how we get people to learn. And it's by talking to people. Yeah. Simple as that. We do focus groups. We'll ask surveys. As Toby has said, we will try and ask for as much data around the research that our clients have done on their own users and really use that to kind of build some profiles of, of why people should yeah. learn and how we get content to them. Well, and two things on that one that I think are worth highlighting on this is you know, the reality of this, and I think sometimes this is where we, we get frustrated and, and trip a bit, is this is a lot of work and it's hard. Mm -hmm. Right. We we talk about this stuff all the time. Be aligned to business goals. Make sure you're, you know, making doing this stuff. And it's like, well, why aren't we doing it? Because we're all talking about, well, the reality is it's really freaking hard sometimes. And I, I used to have hair. I don't anymore because that's I mean, it's it's grit. You just have to stick it through and know you're gonna get kicked in the teeth sometimes. And you're just gonna have to yeah. pick yourself up and say, We're doing it again. Like I'm gonna get beat up. And I'm going to go back to the drawing board and then I'm just going to keep hammering it because the conversation you had of having an organizational conversation of, hey, we need to prioritize one thing. Nobody yeah. in the boardroom goes, yes, okay, we got it. Let's move forward. You're, you're going to run into a, 
no, there's a hundred things we need to prioritize and yeah. you're going to have to work, work yeah. through that piece. And I think that's, that's an important yeah. message to let people know is it's, yeah. it's not easy and buying a cool tool doesn't make, it might make it easier, but it doesn't just, you know, snap yeah. and snap your fingers. I think we the, see, this time, see our clients having, and we try and help them again with some data, try and pick those battles. Cause as you say, it is, it is going into battle, it is getting beaten up and then it is having to pick yourself back up again. The easiest decision you can make in a kind of senior middle management role in a, in a big company is we are going to do this, this, oh, and we're going to do this as well. That's easy. Everyone's happy with that decision. Great. We're doing more. The harder decision to say, the hard decision to make is say, no, we're not going to do that. And the hardest thing to do is to challenge ineffective processes, to call people out and say, you've got no evidence that this is effective. You've got a whole team of people doing it. Why are you doing it? Because those people should be doing this. And that's, as Rob said, that's how we see the battle that we fight with our clients for difficult questions. And it's really, it's, it's curating your challenge, right? Like it's curating what you're doing. It's like, well, look, I've only got so many hours I can put in every day. Yeah. Um, am I going to do it paying lip service to an initiative that we know isn't relevant? Or am I going to say, actually, you know what? We're not doing that. Well, see, and we, we, we talked about Sparta and the Punisher in the beginning, and now we're back to the whole battle analogies and what it is. But I mean, in some regards, and it's not, doesn't have to be violent, but it is, it is a challenge. And I think that is something that we have to be comfortable with. If we're, if we're afraid of a challenge, you know, then, then we will always be the, the workshop, you know, coordinators. That's where we'll mm -hmm. sit. And that's where we belong. Because if that's all we're doing, that's the, that's the relevance that we're bringing to the organization. And I'll, that'll probably yeah. blow up the chat. But, um, you know, the other thing that you bring up that I think a lot of questions came up is this, right? How do you balance what the organization wants people to develop on and maybe they people want to develop in other ways and i personally can say i've been in countless conversations where you know the push is always to try and push people towards what the organization wants and my take on that is it's a yes and situation where it's like yes let's do a better job of that but if we're trying to create a culture of development and critical thinking we also need to let go a little bit and say, hey, like if you get everybody just developing in general, that's a heck of a lot better than where we are in many cases now where people are only doing what they're forced to do. And I think sometimes opening up those floodgates a bit and saying, you know what, if you want to develop on something that interests you that may not be relevant to your job, we should look at that as a value add because we may uncover talent in our organizations we didn't know we had. They might be in the wrong role. They might be in that, which goes back to that broader talent discussion. So I'm curious if you're, you know, as you go through that battle, if you will, with that, if you're seeing those conversations open up more. Yeah, I think the it depends on the skills framework and kind of how immersed we are in the organization. And and but I I think one of the things or the key things about the platform, like I say, is that we are using content that has been approved by the client. So there's not going to be, to use my kind of how to draw monsters example, if you're trying to help someone to be a better manager, there's not going to be a course in there that's going to kind of, you know, it doesn't mean that we're not going to put, you know, as a platform, we're content agnostic. We're not going to, we'll pull in LinkedIn, we'll pull in Coursera, we'll pull in Get Abstract, we'll pull in YouTube, TED, HBR. So we're not then going to say, okay, well, you've seen this TED talk. Now go and watch some more because you're on the TED platform or you're in LinkedIn learning. It might be that you go in for cybersecurity. And then all of a sudden you see something on the right-hand side that is 
how to draw monsters. And that picks you up. You know, we're, we're kind of guiding people to the right source. We're not going to block anybody off to say, you're only going to look at what you are kind of looking at within Magpie. It's a, it's a continuous learning tool. And I think just how we kind of potentially keep people on track with any learning platform, one of the big difficulties is the easy thing is launching it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the difficulty that all of us face is once we've done that big bang launch, how do we get people to continue clear of what the value proposition is to the learner of them taking 10 minutes out of their time and not going on Instagram and not going on Twitter, but to spend 10 minutes going into your learning tool and able to kind of level up. And it is to give them that incentive, give them that reason why that's useful to them. Um, and I think that's the most key thing is with all of that we do, the build your kind of analogy that you used at the very beginning, Chris, you know, build it and they will come. We know that that's never going to happen. No. So it's curating content that's aligned to kind of the business goal and then nudging people. If people go off track, you know, of, of all of a sudden you have, and we have one client that works on digital transformation project. They thought, like I said, that the, the skills that people would want to look at were kind of more advanced digital skills. So your blockchain, your cybersecurity, and it's why I mentioned communication. The number one skill that people wanted to look at on a digital transformation program was communication. So it's about kind of being able to offer people the, the T-shaped or kind of a widespread role of to say, you can focus on everything and we're not going to block what your focus is, but we're also going to suggest things to you that are going to kind of allow you to narrow down and bottom out that T as well, which are going to be based on our data, the algorithm, and also the skills framework to be able to say, Chris, because you're in this role or because your objective is this, we think these things are more relevant to you. Go ahead and do that. But we're certainly not going to stop you from using the search bar to look at everything in the tool if you wanted to, or look at the explore section below kind of our um, these kind of more curated and I would say smart playlists, which are going to be really unique to you based on usage. Okay. Well, and, and your point about not getting to the, what I would call the starting line, right? I think a lot of times people look at the launch of a platform as the finish line. And on, on our end, I get it. I get why that happens, right? By the time you get there, <laughs> you're, you're shot, right? You've been, you've been battling all the way along and you finally get there and you're like, thank goodness we're finally launching this thing out. And the, the natural tendency is to say, Ooh, like, move on. Thanks. We're done. And we can't. So I, I am curious with that though. How do you, because I think that's a risk for anybody looking at these tools, you know, or, or magpie and saying, Hey, we, we want to do something like this is that they run the risk of doing that. And then you look at the tool and say, the tool didn't work. And it's like, well, no, that's not what happened. You gave up too early. How do you help organizations through that? Because it is tough, right? You're, you're on mile 25 in the marathon and you want to just stop. Uh, well, I, I guess um, it's where my role comes in or the department that I work in. You know, I, customer success is my, I'm head of customer success at Filtered. And we're very aware um, that Filtered is not one of these big immovable projects or products like an LMS. You know, you, in, you do one LMS every, hopefully every 10 years, right? But if you kind of, it's not working, you did a bit more. Thinking. Um, um, we're aware that what we do is is not an LMS. It's something that can be switched in now. So the the key part of us, we as we've said, we're a machine learning platform. So if no one uses it, the machine doesn't get better. Yep. And that is the key part of working with us is in house. We have a data science team that's going to be able to help with all the data 
analysis that we've been talking to. An executive business review is a key kind of point of every client's contract is every three months we'll sit down with a report that our data science teams looked at and start to show you some insights of how we can improve not only the version of the platform or the instance of Magpie that that client has, but how do we communicate it better? How do we market it? As a tool, we have you know in-house uh, email team that will work on automating emails to be able to nudge people along this journey. It's all built into the service, as well as we are experienced, you know, going back to our um, Excel course, our Excel course had over a million people go through it. We know as an organization, like I say, the DNA of Filtered is about curation, personalization, but it's also about understanding how to get people to learn. So it's using these kind of best practices that we've developed over the last 11 years to really kind of energize an internal L&D department, because the L&D department is going to be able to specialize in one thing. And I think it's, it's hopefully um, not so clear. But like I said, I've worked in marketing before I worked in L&D. So I, you know, from our team, it's a case of being able to give some external expertise that can really move the needle on to achieve the goal. Um, so it's emails, it's videos, it's webinars, doing sessions like this, you know, where we're talking to people live to be able to get them to understand the value of the tool. Um, we're a, a continuous support throughout the length of any contract we're working with anyone. And that's because it's part of the tool. You know, it's, it's the platform is there right. to be used. We want not people buying to just the platform. Okay. Okay. Well, no, and I think that's the the biggest question though I have is because I know this will work for me. Swag. Do you include swag as part of that continuous improvement <laughs> thing? Because I know you send me a filtered T-shirt, and I will I will suddenly find energy that I did not have, um, you know, before. <laughs> that's right. Great swag examples, uh, Rob. Do you wanna do you wanna explain about the uh, the Kit Kats? Yeah, so one of the things we did actually with one of our clients, and I, I can't say that this was our idea. So full disclosure, the client was the one that came up with this idea. Um, and uh, in in the US, I'm sure you must have Kit Kats. Everywhere has Kit Kats. Everywhere. Um, yeah. uh, and, you know, Kit Kats, you can split in half. And we sent out Kit Kats to the first, I think it was 200 people that access Magpie in the organization. Okay. Organization is 5,000 people. And they were customized with a note saying, you know, split this in half share it with a colleague and share Magpie with that person and talk about Magpie to them. So it's a really nice kind of like tangible way for an end user. Um, it's funny that you talk about swag because I'm joining the meeting with a client in 40 minutes. I've got a t-shirt down here ready to put on to wind them up to say that I've got your uh, t-shirt on. Um, I would have yeah, worn one if you sent one to me, but you know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long trip, isn't it? Long one yeah. to send one. But uh, yeah, we we got everything, hoodies, the the whole lot. You know, we're a tech tech uh, You're a tech startup, company. so we've got yeah. got a lot. Well, no, and I think the the kind of joke, but at the same time, serious side of this is, I think sometimes we forget to have fun with this stuff, right? We get so caught up in the work of it, the the day to day, that we we lose the fun and we we forget that. Hey, you know what? It's not that the swag is like okay, we're going to send swag and we operationalize it. But I love that Kit Kat example where it's like, no, this is fun. You get a piece of candy, and we're giving you, we're giving you actionable actionable steps to say, you know what? Share it with someone else. And I'm sure the team that came up with that had a lot of fun planning that and a lot of fun executing it, which can help re-energize you when you're getting to that stage of like, can we just be done with this? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, one, energy is so, go ahead. Yeah. And it's 
Yeah, I'd say no, just iterating and saying energy energy is important and um the the kind of work we do sh it should be it should be fun it should be interesting it should be fulfilling you know it should really be like 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 any job itself you know but, but and those elements for the human for the fun are so important with technology especially when you get down to the level of people who are, are tired of new technology they're tired of new things coming in they're tired of new ways to do stuff they're exhausted by change and transformation you have to find a way to get to that really human simple message and that's it, but it's different for every company, but it's fair, you know, maybe in one place it's Kit Kats in another place, it's a particular way of talking, it's mm. a particular gesture, um, but you've got to find that, that human side for yeah. sure. Well, and, and Nina had asked earlier, and I think it's a, it's an important point, but you know, she's like, well, how do you ensure people practice what they learn and how do you bring this to life? And I think we've, we've summed it up right here with a lot of those things, right? Some of it is what we're talking about with, with machine learning and what Magpie is doing, which is making what people get as relevant to them as possible, because that that's a key part. I think the energy behind it, you know, and having fun with it. I think, you know, I, I look back to my days in teaching and, you know, the teachers that had just lost, they, their eyes were just dead, right? Their, their students, they weren't excited about it. They weren't there. We need to bring that energy and inspire people to do things. But I think a big part of the way we do that is through storytelling and being able to tell the stories that bring people to life. And I think that's the human side that the technology is never going to steal. At, at least mm. I'll put myself out there saying that, but I don't think technology is going to get to that point where we can eliminate the human inspiration. Even if it can be great at, at giving people stuff, if it can tell them exactly what to do, I think that human nature is still what makes it unique. One of the best things I saw just on that uh, point of having fun with it, I saw it on Reddit yesterday and obviously lots of schools are being shut down because of uh, coronavirus and for some schools they're able to kind of do sessions uh, remotely or virtually and there was this one uh, a games design I think it was Ohio University and the professor sent out a it was game design was the course and he sent out a message that was based on Fallout which is a, a game a video game which is generally post-nuclear so the world is you know going to end so he plays on this kind of theme of where we're at now and writes this incredible email of that you're going to have to do this you're going to have to do that really 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 relatable to what they're trying to learn you know game design let's use some game language to align with it um use some acronyms that subtle jokes um which really it got shared on reddit it got fifty thousand people upvote it so you can imagine the impact that, that must have had to his students where fifty thousand other people are going wow this is incredible you know so it's having a bit of fun with it that really goes very very far yeah i i am right there with you and and i think that's something that we can we can bring back to l d along with technology i think we can bring that back bring back the fun and let technology enable us to do it better and more effectively and tell compelling data-driven stories, but not get so caught up in that, that we, you know, just are, are kind of droning on with it. So, you know, we are, I, I knew we would run out of time before we run out of things to talk about. And I, I would love to dig deeper into the machine learning because we did talk before about going into it, but I don't think a minute is going to do us anywhere near the, the justification of what it looks like, but this has been fantastic. I, I really appreciate you both joining me here. I think, you know, from the dialogue and the comments that have come through, I think a lot of people have gotten a lot out of it. So thanks for, thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing more. And I'm sure this won't be the last time we talk. No, for sure. Let's do it again. All right. Thanks, all right. Thank you for all the questions. Thanks everybody. everybody. All right. Bye-bye.